Um, I want to say, before we get started, just a word of thanks as one of the guys from First Baptist, especially to you guys who have traveled. Um, tr we really obviously value so greatly the sacrifice to travel and to do this, and so if I don't get the chance to say it to you, let me, let me just take this opportunity now. And this particular subject that we're addressing in this conference, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it, it's, I, I just got to tell you, I, as we were planning for this and selecting this even, this was going to be the subject actually in 2020. It's been on the calendar for two years. Um, I just think the timing is perfect. I think the subject is perfect. I, I know I've talked to so many people in our church that have said this has really helped them a lot, and so it, it's, it's been great. Um, and, you know, anytime you talk about spiritual power, you know, you're going you're gonna to get the attention of principalities and powers, right? And we heard already, you know, like in Ephesians, that to the intent that principalities and powers in heavenly places, we get their attention as God works by His Spirit through the church. Well, we have evidence of that having happened last night. Because apparently some people were out by the bonfire and there was a legitimate UFO sighting right over the, right over the bonfire pit. Now, I say legitimate. Todd invoked the name of his wife, who doesn't lie. If Todd told the story, we wouldn't believe it. <laughs> but his wife saw it and said it couldn't be a meteor. It was very low in the sky. It was very bright. It had a weird cap shape on the top and it zoomed across the sky at like a billion miles an hour in a flash, and uh, that's how Brett got home. <laughs> so, I, you know, I have, it, I have it on good authority. Somebody, you know, that, that people, I mean, Todd said he likes to sit in his hot tub and just stare at the sky hoping a UFO goes by. <laughs> I don't know that because I haven't been in the hot tub with Todd or anything, <laughs> nor do I plan to. However, why do, why do the West Coast states get all the UFOs? Like, I want, I want to get a UFO. Like, I want to. All right, who cares? All right. And we're back. Okay. <laughs> Ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, 1 Corinthians 14, you know, is that it's that chapter that, you know, the charismatics love to go to to try and prove why they should continue. You know, I would that you all spake with tongues. You know, Paul says, see? You know, that kind of thing. And so I started off this morning session week on Monday talking about when we study a subject and understand what we find to be true and stand on in the scriptures, by, it's just by default that it at the same time helps us understand what we don't believe and what we stand against. And um, the corruption of the gifts and the charismatic movement is probably never more evident than it is obviously with this idea of, of speaking in unknown tongues and Chapter 14, it, you'll, you'll know this if you ever argue with people or debate theology with people, that the very place that they're going to go to try and prove something is true is inevitably going to be the very place you should go to prove the opposite point. And uh, I hope that by the time we're done looking at this chapter uh, this morning that you'll have a better understanding maybe than you already did and maybe you already have a better understanding than I do, but we're going to look at some things that I think will be helpful anyway and... Uh, and look at that. So the title is The Corruption of the Gifts for this morning, and uh, I thought that that was appropriate for, for this chapter. Um, I think we all understand, I put this little statement in your notes, that the Corinthians misused tongues because they were selfish. I don't think there's any question about that, right? Uh, 
So the believers in Corinth enjoyed popping up in the midst of the assembly of the church and, and speaking in tongues out of order and one after another and it was a big show and it was just for them and they said it was for them and they said it edified themselves but it wasn't edifying the church and Paul rebukes them and he says, look, if it's ever going to happen, it needs to be done in order and just a couple of you and you got to have interpretation and all that sort of thing. But the way that they were functioning in the Corinthian church, again, full of problems, is the fact that they were just wanting to do it for themselves, right? And that is contrary to the specific stated purpose of any of the spiritual gifts. Back in chapter 12, in verse number 7, what it's, where we saw it says that the gifts are given to profit with all. It's, it's for everybody. But like, for example, if you look in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse number 4, he that speaketh an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. So whatever it is they were doing, if it's only edifying yourself, it doesn't, it doesn't qualify under the stated purpose of what spiritual gifts are really for. And, and only a cult, only a group that has no authority. That's how I started on Monday. Only a group that has no authority would go to the very chapter written to rebuke the bad use of it to prove that they should use it. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. So today, the point is to try and give you a comprehensive understanding of how God defines and uses this term unknown tongues, not just in this chapter, but throughout history. And then hopefully we can better understand what that means for us today. And I think that once you see it, if you haven't already, you'll be tempted, um, you'll never be tempted to, to think that anything that any of your charismatic friends um, wants to say that they're doing uh, is legitimate. You'll never be confused about that ever again. So before we get into the corruption and the misuse of tongues, I think we need to start by looking at the proper use of tongues. So we'll do that in a second, but let me just take a drink of water here. Let me pray and then uh, we'll get into our outline. Heavenly Father, as we start, I do pray, Lord, that once again, that you would just help us. We want to just be emptied of ourselves. We want you to fill our hearts and our minds and our lives. We want you to be our guide. We want you to be our teacher. We want you to take your holy word, and we want you to reveal it to us, illuminate our hearts, and help us to see exactly what you would have for us. And, and this subject, it's a tough subject. There's, there's definitely some things in here that are, that are very foreign and weird to us. And we want to try and understand them. There's only one possible way we can, and that's if, if you're our teacher. So we're asking you to do that, and we're believing that you'll do that. And we're going to thank you in advance that you will do that. And we're going to pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, point number one, tongue's purpose. We've got to talk about the purpose, the proper intended use of tongues. And, and it even goes beyond the context of merely a spiritual gift, as we'll see by the time we're done. So we're going to start super simple and, you know, I'm the Captain Obvious guy. I know it, it, it seems odd sometimes. You guys are spending extra time to maybe learn some extra things. And you're going to come here and hear me talk about what I'm about to say to you. And you'll be like, seriously, bro. Like, but, but for me, this is how I learn. And I, and I put these you know, brick upon brick slowly because that's how I learn. And, and so hopefully there's somebody else that learns that way too. But overwhelmingly, the, the use of the word tongue in the Bible it is referring to a muscle in your mouth that you use for talking, <laughs> okay? And, and so we're not going to study those references today, but just know that it talks about the tongue. He's talking about speaking uh, overwhelmingly throughout the Scriptures. 
And so my obvious letter A point in your notes is tongues are for speaking, speaking is for communication, and communication is to be understood. So that's a very simple statement, but I think that by the time we get through this, hopefully it, it proves out to be kind of profound, especially when you consider what the Corinthians were using their tongues to do, right? They were using their tongues to do things that were not, not understood or not understandable, right? So clearly the overwhelming use of tongues is to communicate an understandable message, and of course God made us how he made us, and he made us with the ability to communicate verbally, and therefore when God communicates with us, he communicates using words, and words need to be understood, and, and so for example, we wouldn't be surprised when we see King David at the end of his life in 2 Samuel 23, and verse 2 say something like, the Spirit of the Lord spake by me and his word was in my tongue psalm 119 172 my tongue shall speak of thy word for all thy commandments are righteousness so the lord wants to get his word out and through his spirit and through his people he wants to clearly communicate that word not make it unintelligible so david referenced it that way and so certainly we wouldn't be surprised when the son of david references that way jesus christ in john 8 43 when he he's talking to the people around him, he says look why do you not understand my speech can you understand the words coming out of my mouth you know even because you cannot hear my word so all this use of tongues as some as it is modernly used some unintelligible gibberish it's just ridiculous I want to take you back for a second to those first three verses in chapter 13. Where in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. And your charismatic friends immediately will be like, See, see, Paul spoke with angels' tongues. And that's what this, you know, Ramashamalama stuff is, or whatever. And, and so they want to, you know, they want to point to that as though 1 Corinthians 13, 1 is Bible doctrine. But you need to understand that all Paul is doing is using a teaching tool. He's using hyperbole. He's, he's using overemphasis for, for, the, for making a point. Paul never actually spoke with the tongues of angels. I mean, what are those? He's saying, though I speak. You could rephrase it as though he's saying, even if I could speak with the tongues of angels. So I put in your notes Basically, the first, from the first three verses of chapter number 13, the five though I statements that come out of 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, and again, we saw yesterday, that's all just a comparison and a contrast. So it's a, none of that means anything if I don't have charity, right? Charity is far greater <coughs> than even the possible playing out of all of these amazing things that Paul says, though I, okay? But what you need to understand is these are just simply hypothetical statements. They're hypothetical statements. We might say, even if I. So like, for example, Let's say, for example, my, my wife tragically passed away. 
and, and I made a statement like this. Though I have $2 million, I'd give it all to spend one more day with my wife. Well, let me just tell you, I don't have $2 million. But even if I did have $2 million, I'd gladly give it away to spend more time with my wife. That's what he's doing. That's the kind of usage that he's given it, right? I mean, it would pale, the, losing the money would pale in comparison to the much better thing of having more time with the person I love more than any, anyone else on this planet, right? And Paul is saying, even if I could speak with the tongues of angels, it, it pales in comparison to having charity among the church. That's what he's communicating. You say, well, that's interesting, but can you prove it? Sure, I can prove it. It's actually pretty easy. I put the statements in your notes for you so you could have it and look over it yourself later if you want. Paul doesn't actually speak with the tongues of men and of angels, certainly not in an all-encompassing way. I mean, he doesn't speak with all human languages, and the fact of the matter is, um, outside of that one obscure statement, what are angels' tongues anyway? Because when angels ever show up in the Bible, they're always speaking the language of the people they're talking to. They're always bringing a message from the Lord so the people fully understand whatever it is they were supposed to say anyway. So you can't refer to that statement as though you're establishing some kind of doctrine. He doesn't actually understand all mysteries and have all knowledge because all you got to do is go back to the very last chapter. In fact, just look up a few verses to, we looked at yesterday in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse number 9 where Paul admits, we know in part. How is he possibly saying that he understands all mysteries when he just got done saying, well, there's stuff we don't know yet? Of course he doesn't actually have faith to remove mountains. That's only recorded back in Matthew 17 and Matthew 21 with the disciples before Paul was even saved. Of course he doesn't actually give all his goods to feed the poor because at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy 4.13, he asked for somebody to bring back his cloak and the parchments. He had stuff and he wanted it back. He wasn't giving all his stuff away, right? And he doesn't actually give his body to be burned because at the end of his life, at least as much as recorded and everything we know about it, he ends up under house arrest in Rome in Acts 28. None of those things are actually true of Paul's life. You can't possibly refer to that and come to the conclusion that in, there's some legitimate biblical basis for ecstatic, unknown, quote-unquote, angelic gibberish. Nobody else can understand it, but God can understand it. Tongues are used to speak understandable, intelligible words. So let's continue in your outline. Letter B, tongues are languages. And here's the key, which represent nations. And this is actually important. So the word tongue, everybody knows this, I think, is just another word. It's a synonym for the word language, right? My mother tongue is English, you know, that kind of a thing. It's a known human language every single time. So you get into Acts chapter 2, right? And we'll look at that in more detail in a minute here, a little bit. The languages that the people heard, okay, in that miraculous day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, they're listed. Go to verses 9, 10, and 11 and, and read them. You have, the, you have all the, the nations of the people, and they're listed where they're from. So ever since Babel in Genesis 11, the division of the nations was associated with their respective difference 
in language. God confounded the languages on purpose. And he did it so that he could limit the evil that man could accomplish and conspire to do together in unity. So unity becomes a negative thing and God creates division so that he can preserve righteousness. And, and this idea of unification of the world system, in other words, within the church it's different, but in the world system, uh, it became a problem. And, and man was living so long and they could communicate everybody with each other and they could share all their wicked, vile ideas with one another. And man, they got to the point where they were building a tower to make it to heaven on their own. Independent cultures were established within the various language group divisions. And as a result, tongues are the characteristic trait of a foreign people. I mean, every foreign missionary knows that. And that's important. And we see that borne out in the book of Revelation, for example. Things that we always quote at missions conferences. Revelation 7, 9. After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number. Notice, of all nations and kindreds, and people, and tongues stood before the throne. Hallelujah. Yeah, hallelujah, but those are synonyms. Nations, kindreds, people, tongues, because tongues represent nations. God's heart's always for all the nations. God's heart's always for all the peoples of the world. God's never been a respecter of persons. He's always desired that all people would always know him and that all people would worship him. And in the Old Testament, the, the vehicle through which God wanted to accomplish that purpose was the nation of Israel. We see that in Isaiah 42, 6, among other places. I just picked this one. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant to the people. Why? For a light to the Gentiles. He wanted Israel to be a light so all the Gentiles could come into his light, and that they, they then could believe on Jehovah God. And they could follow him in righteousness. That was Israel's mission. Well, of course, Israel, the son of God, right, in a corporate type and picture, it's, it of course is embodied in Jesus Christ's earthly life and ministry, and, and therefore Jesus' mission similarly described in Luke 2.32, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And even though it was God who was the one who confounded the languages at Babel, in order to limit sin. He certainly is capable of empowering people to overcome that barrier and to get the gospel to all nations, right? That's foreign missions. That then becomes our mission. That's the Great Commission, right? Go you into all the world and preach the gospel to everybody. And like I mentioned earlier, missionaries spend years learning languages to be able to clearly communicate that message that salvation is available to them as well and whenever a new missionary goes to a new field that's not a a field that speaks the language that you're used to so if you're going to england or if you're going you know somewhere that they speak english okay maybe you don't have to learn a foreign language but most of the rest of the foreign missionaries do um they know job number one get the language now there's other things you, the language is the key to the culture etc cetera, etc cetera. but Man, the language is the predominant factor that, that gets you in. It's critically important. Let, so, Kale Horvath is learning that right now. By the way, pray for Kale Horvath. Um, God bless him. He's, he's doing great, but Hungarian is, 
clearly in the top five of the hardest languages that you could possibly learn. That's a lot of work. It's really hard. And I actually think he's doing pretty good based on his report of himself, so whatever that's worth. <laughs> he's not known to be a liar, so I think that's probably doing good. It's really hard. Uh, you should be praying for him. Um, but, you know, if, I, if I'm going to be honest with you, I, every once in a while I'll be honest with you. Um, you know, I, I love it when people say, not going to lie. I guess you usually lie, but this time you're not <laughs> going to lie. So I go to Albania back in 1992, okay, and even though, so I, I faced what Kale's facing, even though here I am, this newly ordained, enthusiastic, young, single, Baptist, conservative, cessationist, once I got to Albania, when nobody was looking, I earnestly prayed for the gift of tongues. You know what happened? Nothing. <laughs> I mean, I mean nothing. Like I laid on my bed. You're going to laugh. This is the dumb things that people do and nobody talks about in conferences when they're on camera and microphone. Okay, here we go. I didn't know what to do. I opened my mouth and I'm like, give it to me, Lord. <laughs> nothing. I mean, if it was a legitimate gift today, don't you think God would give it to the missionaries? Amen. I mean, not just a bunch of bozos trying to look cool in front of their home church. Come on. God would give it to the missionaries. Um, tongue's purpose, y'all, seriously. It's clear communication. That's the purpose. Uh, let's go to the second point. Number two, tongue's point. Now, this is clearly defined in Scripture. There's no need to debate it. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22 is one of those banner verses, right? That says, wherefore tongues are for a sign. And that should be underlined and highlighted, and you should know that verse. You should know where to go to it. It should be a, a, a major staple point of your understanding and studying this subject and discussing it with anybody who's interested. Tongues are for a sign. And signs are not designed to teach. Signs are designed to point. That's what signs do. They point to something else. That's what they're for. And 1 Corinthians chapter 14 clearly communicates that prophecy is better than tongues. Right? So let's read the first five verses. So Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. prophesy. Prophecy is better than tongues. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. The charismatics think that's a good thing. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification, to exhortation, to comfort. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. And so the, see, well, I edify myself. Well, okay, but it's not a spiritual gift then. You made that up. Then he says, I would that ye all spake with tongues. Charismatics love that, right? But rather, here we go, it's even better. You know, it'd be great. Speak with tongues all you want, y'all. I mean, Paul's just got, he's got that, you know, Bartell level of sar sarcasm going on. I mean, I read it that way. But rather prophesy, doofus. 
For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. So prophecy is more important. It's greater than tongues unless there's interpretation because then interpretation makes the unknown known and it becomes prophecy. And once it's prophecy, then it's edification. Prophecy is to teach. Prophecy is permanent. Tongues were temporary. Tongues just were to point to something. So a couple of years ago, Troy gave a really good message here, and I'm going to give him credit for this illustration he used. I'm going to steal right now. And uh, he used the illustration, if, if you're on a road trip, and you're, we're, here we are in East Central Ohio, and if you're going to drive north on I-77 to go to Cleveland, it's about 90 miles north of here, and uh, if you're going to head up I-77, you're going to see some road signs, right? The highway department has been nice to us and decided to put some signs out to let you know where you are and how close you're getting to the thing you're, you're going to. And so the first thing you're going to come to is the first sort of major city is Canton, and that's about 30 miles north of us. And then you're going to keep driving past Canton, and about 30 miles north of Canton is the city of Akron. And then if you keep driving past Akron, you're finally 30 miles up the road from there, you're going to get, you're going to, get to Cleveland. And while you're on the road, as you're approaching Canton, you see signs that tell you, hey, here comes Canton. But once you get north of Canton, you're headed to Akron. You know what you're never going to see again? You're never going to see another sign for Canton because you've already arrived at Canton. There's no more need for a sign pointing to Canton, right? And, and listen, signs are there to point. I mean, why, why in the world would you need, you're going the wrong direction now. There's, the signs are now pointing to Akron. When you get past Akron, the signs are then pointing, right, to Cleveland. And, uh, you know, with the Browns, we have a reason to go to Cleveland now, so... That's something. That's pretty good. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, there's a couple of things up there. Um, but the miraculous ability to speak in a real language that you never studied, well, that was a sign that God was doing something. It pointed to the fact that there's something new up ahead, right? So if you live in New Philadelphia and you make that trip to Canton fairly frequently because there's something, there's new things in Canton. They have like restaurants worth going to they have you know the pro football hall of fame if that's your thing like they've got some things to there's some new stuff up there we don't get new stuff here very often i've lived here almost 13 years and i've seen a dollar general built <laughs> we finally got a starbucks and a chipotle and i think that's it for 13 years um but you get, on the, you get the signs point. There's new things if you drive away from here. See? So really what's going on, though, it pointed to the fact that God was doing something new. And, and here's the thing. There's a new dispensation kicking in. There's a new dispensation kicking in. So you get Mark 16, the end of that book of Mark. Everybody knows, you know, the Bible rejectors say it shouldn't even be in your Bible. Uh, because it's really important, probably. That's why. I don't know. Verse 15, he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. We looked at this already. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. So again, clearly tongues is on the list of things that are considered signs. Like 1 Corinthians 14, 22. Tongues are for a sign. They'll take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick. They shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven, sat at the right hand of God. They went forth, preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, confirming the word with signs following, right? 
Because God was going to um, offer them a new message. There's this new story coming along because Jesus Christ already died, was buried, resurrected again, and, and he's about to ascend, and the apostles are now dispatched out into the world to carry this new message. There's something new coming. So there's going to be signs pointing to this new thing that's coming. So in the first century, the apostles had these sign gifts accompany their preaching for the purpose of confirming that it was God doing it. And the apostles spoke for God. So we've already looked at this, but I'll just remind you again, Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Or 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience and signs, wonders, mighty deeds. So in your notes I put this in there because you need to be aware of this if you're not. Each of the signs referenced in Mark 16 are documented to have been performed in the early church. So the casting out of devils, You'll find that in Acts chapter 8. That's actually Philip when he goes to Samaria. And it's explicitly stated in verses 6 and 7. Speaking with new tongues, three specific instances. We'll be looking at them in a minute in more detail in Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19. Taking up serpents, we see that happen when Paul and his ship lands in Melita in Acts 28. Laying on hands on the sick and they shall recover the 100% guarantee. Okay, that's all throughout the book of Acts. Right, And then that one statement, and it's a conditional statement. It's the only statement that's not a certainty, because it starts with if. If they drink any deadly thing. So you don't actually read of anybody drinking any deadly thing, right, and recovering in the book of Acts. But, but, you do read about it occurring in the tribulation. And so you can go to Revelation chapter 8 and verse 11. You can compare that with Jeremiah chapter 9, and you can do that study on your own. But it shows up again as Israel's fleeing into the wilderness and the waters become wormwood. But yet the Israelites, if they'll trust God, can drink, and they'll be able to drink when everybody else is drinking the wormwood and dying. So like on our road trip to Cleveland, once the sign, the thing that the sign was pointing to arrives, there's no more need for a sign. In this case, the signs confirmed the word. And we've seen this already, but the word at that time was spoken. Until there was a confirmed written record of God's word, right? The scriptures confirmed by the body of Christ through the churches and the priesthood of the believers, the canon of scripture, well, then there's no more need for a sign to point towards it. Therefore, the signs ceased. Tongues are signs, it says, that follow them that believe in Mark 16. And so the context is the apostles, but it says that they notice, I want you to pay attention, right, to these um, prepositions. They follow them that believe for the explicit purpose of confirming the word preached. But I do want you to notice, go back to 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 22. We started off, wherefore tongues are for a sign. But let's finish that verse. Not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. So putting it together, I wrote it this way. Signs follow the believers, right? But they're not for the believers. 
They follow the believers for the purpose of getting the attention of the unbelievers. That's what they're for. So they follow the believers, but they're for the purpose of something else. And to make it even clearer, they're most specifically designed to get the attention of unbelieving Jews because we're going to put all the contents of Scripture together and go back to 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 22 and verse 23. The Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. So you have all three groups of people, the Jews, the Gentiles, and the church. And they all have three very distinct things that are characteristics of them. Right? The Jews require a sign. The church doesn't require a sign. The church preaches Christ crucified, and that's enough. So therefore, it makes sense that every single time that we have a legitimate use of tongues in the Bible, that there are unbelieving Jews present. Because God is using it to get their attention and to teach them something, to point towards a message, right? So those three times are starting in Acts chapter 2, and that is the Jewish feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And so in Acts chapter 2, in <coughs> verse number 5, it says, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, here it is, out of every nation under heaven. And it goes down and it begins to list the nations. And I referenced this before. And so you could read in verse 10, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes. These were devout Jews, but they needed to accept the fact that Jesus Christ was their Messiah. They missed that. And you read Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, and you probably already have multiple times. That thing was 100% Jewish history leading up to the crucifixion. That's all he did. And so what was happening is this outpouring of Peter's preaching in the tongues, and everybody hears it in their own language, this miracle that occurred at that time, was a sign to the Jews who would have been Jewish proselyte religious believers, but yet still unbelieving toward the most important fact that they need to know is that Jesus Christ was their Messiah. So it's a sign to Jews, and those Jews are unbelieving. The next occurrence is Acts chapter 10. That's Peter meeting with Cornelius, who's a Gentile, and he's about to get saved. And you know the story. We're not going to dig into all the chapter. Peter has a vision of the sheet coming down with the unclean meats and arise, kill, and eat. You know, all the life verse of the deer hunters, you know, all that kind of stuff. And Peter comes, I saw that actually as a sticker on the back of a guy's pickup truck, you know, he showed a guy in a deer stand, tree stand, and it said, arise, kill, and eat. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so Peter, I, I don't know how else to say it, Peter kind of understood that God doesn't want him to consider the Gentiles unclean if God considers them clean. Lord, I'm not going to eat the unclean meat. How dare you call it unclean? I said it's clean. Okay. So the three guys come, you know, from Cornelius. They bring Peter to meet Cornelius. He goes over there. And he shows up to meet Cornelius, and he says this in verse 28. And he said unto them, You know how, it, how that it's an unlawful thing for a man that's a Jew to keep company or come in one of another nation? But God hath showed me, sound, almost sounds like a charismatic, God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So Peter kind of got it. I'm going to argue that he kind of didn't. 
because he meets Cornelius, right? And then, and then the next, very next verse, verse 29. Therefore I came unto you without gainsaying as soon as I was sent for. I ask therefore, I, for what intent you've sent for me? <laughs> well, I thought you kind of just knew the intent. I thought you got the unclean meat analogy. I, I thought you kind of understood. I mean, d- come on, Pete, don't, don't you recognize a, you know, a gospel opportunity when it's presented to you? I mean, how much better of an open door? The guy said, hey, come tell me stuff. And God said, hey, here's what you should know. So Peter shows up and he's like, uh, yeah, God's been showing me all this stuff. What do you want? So Cornelius is just a good dude, right? And you go down to like verse 33 and he's like, what? We just want to hear whatever God has told you. And God just, he just told, God just told him, don't, men aren't unclean anymore, by the way. So Peter, you know, Peter's like a good Baptist preacher. I mean, I don't know. I'm not trying to be a Baptist brider or nothing, but it seems like he has those characteristics. Like a lot of preachers, when, when they're asked to give a message on the spot, they haven't really prepared. Peter just goes through the file real quick and he pulls out an old sermon. Because he doesn't know what he's going to do. It's not like he studied. He pulls out an old stu- some old stuff that he preached back in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3. He starts giving a history lesson about Jesus' life and baptism and earthly ministry and crucifixion and resurrection. And his ministry to the Jews and, and especially to the apostles and how it's confirmed through the prophets. And then he gets down to verse 43 and he says this, To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Which oddly sounds a lot like Acts chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, where he said, But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. A very Jewish message, right? The national salvation of Israel at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Or not unlike Acts 2.36, where he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And just as Peter was about to roll out the rest of that Acts 2 sermon with Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Just at that moment, before he gets it out of his mouth, the Holy Spirit interrupted him, stopping him from preaching Acts 2.38 outside of its dispensational context. And so check this out in Acts chapter 10, verse 44. So he comes off verse 43, whoever believeth him shall receive remission of sins. And verse 44, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all of them which heard the word, and they of the... God cut him off when he said enough, before he said too much. And, and notice verse 45. And they of the circumcision, which believed... Yeah, they believed. They were astonished. As many as came with Peter. Why? Because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So all these Jews that are traveling with Peter, they're astonished and are amazed. And it's a sign for them. 
to believe that the gospel can actually go to Gentiles. So the scriptures are consistent. Something new is happening. These signs are pointing to something. God's doing a new thing. So the last time, Acts 19, Paul finds Jewish disciples in Ephesus, and that's Gentile territory. So he asked them if they've received the Holy Ghost since they believed, which, you know, again, the Charismatics love that stuff. It becomes the source text of all that corruption of the baptism of the Holy Ghost is some subsequent event to your salvation, evidenced with the speaking in tongues nonsense. They're going to get that out of Acts 19. Well, these disciples had some faith, right? They said they believed on John's baptism, which was a baptism for repentance, the national uh, entity of Israel as a people had to repent. They, but these people had not yet heard of Jesus. They'd never heard of the crucifixion. They never heard of the gospel. And so it says in verse 5 that when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came on them and they spake with tongues and prophesied. So upon the moment of getting saved, the Holy Ghost coming on them, right, they spake with tongues as a sign, right? Maybe to themselves because they were Jews, but I would say also to the other Jews that were around them because it goes on in the very next verse 7, it says, and all the men were about 12. So there's other guys witnessing it too. 100% of the time. There's no other legitimate uses of tongues in the Bible. Yeah, 1 Corinthians talks about it, but it doesn't quote a particular event historically as having occurred 1 Corinthians 14 is just Paul's teaching about its abuse so tongues have a purpose and they point to something and it also has a prophecy and so that's our third point tongues prophecy 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 21 says this in the law it's written with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak to this people and yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. So it's interesting because 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul makes a point of connecting what's going on with the gift of tongues in the early church and what was being corrupted in Corinth to the Old Testament law. He's reminding them of something that they should know. So this is a quote from Isaiah 28, 11 which says, for with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. So it's interesting. Paul is going to make the connection. Early church, Corinthians, Isaiah, and Israel. Right? In the law, it's written. And what's going on in Isaiah is that God is pronouncing his coming judgment on Israel. Specifically, in chapter 28, he's talking to Ephraim. Why? Because of their apathy toward God and toward His Word. God had been speaking to Israel clearly in their own language because He wanted them to understand. Before verse 11 in Isaiah 28 are verses 9 and 10, verses you should be well aware of. Isaiah 28, 9. Whom shall He teach knowledge? And whom shall He make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts, for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. He's been trying to build a case 
of biblical discipleship and precept upon precept and growing in his word and trusting and knowing God, but when they just rejected it and refused to hear the word of the Lord, he's like, well, all right, with stammering lips and another tongue. You're not going to listen to your own language and do what you said. Well, there's going to be other tongues showing up. So historically, foreign tongues were assigned to Israel, pointing to coming judgment and invasion of foreign nations because tongues represent nations. So the foreign tongues that were going to be spoken and coming into Jerusalem was a sign to point to the fact that you're going to have foreign invaders come into Jerusalem. But since they wouldn't listen, right, that's why God was going to do that. This actually goes all the way back to Moses and what God had to say back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now, you may recall that Deuteronomy 28 is that amazing chapter where we have this comparison and contrast where Moses begins to lay out all of the blessings that Israel will experience when they enter the promised land if they obey. And there's 14, yeah, 14 verses of blessing listed. If they obey, they'll have this blessing and that blessing and the next blessing. And then chapter 28 goes on and it lists the curses that'll come on Israel if they disobey. And coincidentally, there's 54 verses of curses, way more than the blessing list, if they disobey. And I know I'm just a nut about stuff like this, but the difference between 54 and 14 is 40, and that's a test. And Israel's being put to the test while they're on the east side of the Jordan River and about to enter in with Joshua to the Promised Land, and God's putting it out in front of them and letting them know what it's going to look like. So in the section where he's listing all the curses, we'll pick it up in verse 49. The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which shall not regard the person of the old, nor show favor to the young. And he shall eat the fruit of thy cattle and the fruit of thy land until thou be destroyed, which also shall not leave thee either corn, wine, or oil, or the increase of thy kind, or flocks of thy sheep, until he have destroyed thee. And all of that, we know, began to ultimately take place in about 750 B.C. with the Assyrian captivity of the ten northern tribes. David warns of basically the same principle about 250 years before that first captivity. In Psalm 31, he kind of comes at it from the other angle, still exhorting Israel to do right. Psalm 31, verse 20 says, Thou shalt hide them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of man. Thou shalt keep them secretly in a pavilion... From the strife of tongues. And tongues become a strife, right? If Israel doesn't choose to be faithful to the Lord, but if they will be faithful to the Lord, the Lord will protect them from this strife of foreign invasion. And then about 625 B.C., about 20 years before the Babylonian captivity of the two southern tribes, Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 5.15, Lo, I will bring a nation upon you from far, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. It's a mighty nation. It's an ancient nation. A nation whose language thou knowest not, neither understandeth what, thy, what they say. So you better beware, there's some foreigners coming into town, and you're going to hear foreign tongues spoken around here. So in your notes I put it this way. This applied historically as Israel was about to go into captivity to Assyria and Babylon. 
But this applies prophetically during the tribulation when Gentile nations led by the man of sin persecute Israel and cause her to flee to the wilderness again. And we see that in Jeremiah chapter 30, the first three verses. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Thus speaketh the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord. I will cause them to return to the land that I gave their fathers, and they shall possess it. Again, prophetically, in the tribulation. God's warning his people, Israel in this case, that if they do not repent and turn from their sinful ways, they're going to hear foreign languages spoken in the holy city. So in Jeremiah 36, 2 and 3, take thee a roll of a book and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah and against all the nations from the day I spake unto thee, from the days of Josiah even unto this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I propose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. But refusing to repent would mark the loss of that earthly kingdom, that kingdom of heaven for, of Israel. And that's what did happen. And we read that in Lamentations chapter 5, verse 6 and 7. We have given the hand to the Egyptians and to the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. Our fathers have sinned and are not. And we have borne their iniquities. And the sad statement of the day comes in verse 16 where it says, The crown has fallen from our head. Woe unto us that we have sinned. And they're in captivity. So God uses tongues in the scripture as a mechanism to point out that judgment is coming and things are changing. And Israel better beware because the Gentiles are about to be the focus again. That happened in Israel with Assyria and then with Babylon when foreign nations showed up speaking tongues unknown to them and it was God's judgment on them. And the physical kingdom of heaven was being turned over from Israel to the Gentiles. So now we go back into 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and Paul quotes Isaiah 28 for the New Testament church. What does that mean? Well, here we are in Corinth about 57 AD. The church has begun about 20 or 25 years prior at Pentecost. And God's use of tongues in the early church, you have some bullet points. Remember, the early church was a Jewish church and it was centered in Jerusalem. And the gospel was to be preached first unto the Jews. And upon the Jews' continued rejection of Jesus Christ, and upon their insistence on emphasizing physical control of governments, the spiritual kingdom of God was now in transition. And it was to be handed over to Gentile control. And the sign to the unbelieving Jews that this was happening was that they would hear unknown tongues again. And God used the miracle of tongues together with Paul's inspired reference to Isaiah 28 to get their attention that once again judgment was coming on the Jews for their disbelief. God started his message from the very beginning of the apostolic era giving his great commission in Mark that these signs would follow the apostles as a warning that if the Jews don't repent and respond to it, that they, once again, will be replaced in this new spiritual kingdom. 
and that once again it'll be turned over to the Gentiles. And when God started this message, the Jews still had a chance to respond. And even though Paul is the apostle that was sent and commissioned to go to the Gentiles, he always had his heart for his kinsmen, his people, Israel. We see that in Romans 9 and 10 and 11. And so the last statement I have for you, once the scriptures were complete and the church was clearly a primarily Gentile church, well, there's no more need for tongues. Any further application of them beyond that point in history would clearly be a corruption of the gift. And it would require the conclusion that at best what is practiced today is done in the flesh. And at worst, a manifestation of demonic activity. The entire practice was out of order. And that goes against the entire intention. And so 1 Corinthians 14 wraps up with statements like this in verse 32. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You should be able to be in control of what's coming out of your mouth. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And so it wraps up <clears throat> verse 40. Let all things be done decently and in order. They were out of order, and they had corrupted the gift. And they were missing the whole message that it was supposed to portray and what it was supposed to point to and what they were to clearly understand from it. And when you can see the all-encompassing historical application of God's use of tongues throughout the Bible, you'll never again be confused about some of these private interpretive singular verses yanked out of their context rested by people with ulterior motives and agendas now i'm not saying they're all evil you might have a lot of good sincere charismatic friends that have never actually studied and understood these things if we can lovingly share it if we can lovingly help them if we can prayerfully come alongside and try and help them then we should but don't you be confused about this. There's no reason why you should. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Let me pray and I'm done. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time and thank you for this study. And thank you, Lord, for just all the ways that you demonstrate your love to us by certainly warning us in advance of what it is you want to do, whether it be a blessing or whether it be a warning of judgment coming. But in all these things, we surrender ourselves to you just in humble adoration and in thankfulness to your Holy Spirit who comes and gives us this understanding, who teaches us the word that he wrote. And I pray, God, that you would be honored and glorified in our lives through it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.